Trade Journal presents. There is nothing like doing um, a project where you put like the smartest engineers in the world in a room and say, okay, now you're the quality control. <laughs> Episode six, Ginger Scoggins, Stan and Stafford, and Gregory Walker go behind the design of ASHRAE's new global headquarters. They share what they learned while renovating a 1970s era building into a net zero energy showcase. So I am uh, Ginger Scoggins. I am the current ASHRAE treasurer. And uh, for this particular project, I was chair of the building ad hoc through the sale of the old building, um, the design phase, right, and the construction phase through the commissioning phase of the project. So I'm Greg Walker. Um, I'm the punching bag. I mean, the architect (laughs) uh, on this process Uh, with Hauser Walker Architecture, and uh, we're based here in Atlanta. And I'm Stanton Stafford uh, with Integral Group in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm the managing principal in Atlanta. And I beg to differ on Greg's punching bag comment because (laughs) as the mechanical engineer of record for a project that will house the, uh, you know, the the center of the mechanical engineering universe, so to speak, uh, I think I I fielded my share of punches on this one. But came out, you know, with uh, my chin up. so. So, Greg Walker, architect extraordinaire, tell us, what was your biggest takeaway? learning lesson from this project and you can do one for the design phase if you want and one for construction i I think from the design side one of the biggest takeaways was kind of confirming that there is a right steps in the right order process to doing you know a market rate level net zero energy project and what i mean by that is there's a definite ordering kind of hierarchically of the decisions you need to make. And and I know Stanton and I have talked about this a little bit over time, but, you know, the envelope needing to be set first because you just have to know what those parameters really are to know how to right size any of the systems behind it. Because if you're not getting daylight in, it's going to need, you know, in the ways that you need, it's going to require more artificial lighting, which is going to cost more money and everything else. If you're not thermally efficient enough or you don't have the air infiltration tuned as well as you can, you'll spend a lot more on the mechanicals system because you're going to need a bigger system. So I think it's not really looking at the envelope as a lot of architects do is purely uh, an aesthetic um, set of decisions. It's understanding how quickly you can get to the performance metrics that everybody agrees you've got to hit to make it correct. From the construction side, this was a very quick project and a very fast-paced project. I think one of the things that we learned going in there is with as much as we were trying to put into the ceiling area, mechanical systems, the lighting, the radiant system, uh, and the sprinklers, the BIM was in value, you know, us using a BIM or building information modeling platform was not only essential, but probably could have been even utilized a little bit more as a kind of coordination tool on the contracting side. I think we've started to experiment with that on other projects since ASHRAE's, having them do almost like a, a second BIM model just to confirm the coordination because there was so much going on in the ceilings with ASHRAE. So there was definitely 
moments where you're like, okay, that can't go there. <laughs> you know, you've got to move this over um, and reset that. So that's probably the biggest thing was maybe when you're aiming for that level of coordination, make sure that everybody on the design and construction side really understands what they're seeing. And you were given a very challenging budget to start this project. Um, we all were which ended up not being the budget that we ended up with, but it was the budget we started with. Yes. So you um, did a good job of kind of walking us through the challenges with our budget. So talk a little bit about that in terms of how you helped make those decisions. Yeah, so I think with any budget you start with, right, you're, what, what we're trying to decide early on is what's important you know, to, to ASHRAE, like what is the most meaningful decisions that need to be incorporated into the design? Because then you can start to offer options and you can start to offer other things that can be done. But at the end of the day, if you're not meeting sort of the fundamental needs and telling them where they might need to reallocate some of the money back towards more fundamental things, um, you know, you can get lost and end up really over budget. So for us, I think because we didn't have really too many opportunities to do anything twice, we tried to think of it as um, with a budget, like, okay, we've got to be here, you know, kind of within this range at the end of schematics. And then we got to be a little closer at the end of design development. we got to be this close, you know, even when we're going under contract. And, it, and then it's a hard thing, I think, for owners to hear, like, we still, we're still never going to be, you know, 100% aligned because we're just moving too quick. So I think for us, that strategy was to just try to narrow down the variables so that if we got into something, you know, in, in CDs where something didn't quite work, or if we got into something under construction that didn't quite work, that we were talking a pretty narrow range to fix it. So that, right. that, that's probably the way that we approached it. Okay. Moving over to Stanton. So Stanton, early in the process, probably I think between SDs and DDs, you guys narrowed down the systems pretty quickly to two options. We did. So th the question to you, I guess, is how did you come up with those options? And um, why did you come up with those options? If you can remember back that No, I, I can remember. And I remember it was, yeah. it was a lot of back and forth with uh, the technical ad hoc and, and, and Ginger, your team in those early charrettes. You could tell everybody in those shreds really was chomping at the bit to talk, you know, mechanical system, it, it being ASHRAE. But, you know, I think we we worked the process, kind of like as Greg described, really, you know, in, in a logical order, focusing on passive strategies first. But I remember when I, you know, got to that that section, you know, John Andary, my colleague and I, we got to that section and we had a lot of different systems, you know, on the table uh, because and one of the things that we knew having done you know, zero energy projects before if you get the passive side right, if you get the envelope right, then there are a lot of different ways to skin the cat uh, relative to the dynamic systems, HVAC systems. So depending on what you could do with the passive, it kind of frees you up to do a lot of different things um, with active. So we had a lot of different systems and, you know, from the get-go conversations with the, the technical ad hoc, there were certain systems that were less desirable, you know, other systems that that ASHRAE and the design team really wanted to, to explore further. We, we got to a, a short list and, and really the, the two systems that we decided on, you know, to compete side by side in early DD pricing and design were really kind of two ends of, you know, the spectrum. You know, there was the, the more off the shelf conventional 
um, approach to building conditioning. And then there was a little more cutting edge, especially for a hot, humid climate system that may show more like leadership and, and, you know, proof of concept that you can do this in a market where it's not done. So, you know, on, on the, the off the shelf, it was thermodynamically zoned rooftop units paired with a dedicated outdoor air system and high volume, low speed fans zoning those those units to handle the sensible load by by facade by program space type and letting the uh, the dedicated outdoor air system uh, handle the ventilation air trim the latent and really you know set the relative humidity level in in the building with the fans i think we ended up with over 100 fans in the building um, but the fans as that means of improving you know air velocity towards the ASHRAE 55 thermal comfort model and then on the on the other end, uh, was a system that we ended up with was you know a radiant heating and cooling system using radiant panels. This being an existing building, um, it's not in slab radiant, but radiant overhead panels paired uh, with that same dedicated outdoor system and uh, the high volume low speed fans. Uh, again, that carried in both concepts, as did the the DOAS unit, uh, and that radiant system uh, was fed by you know, a heat pump chiller, you know, a modular air cooled heat pump chiller, because we had a conscious focus on water consumption uh, and minimizing water consumption and reducing complexity of the system you know, that was on the table. So we went with an air cooled solution. And those really represented two ways of almost accomplishing the, the same energy performance, really because we had done the right thing and made the right moves uh, relative to the, the building envelope and uh, the passive strategies. Well, kudos to getting a, a group of uh, HVAC design engineers <laughs> to agree on one concept, because that in itself is a challenge. And, um, you know, we had some strong leaders in our group that really... Um, have some strong opinions on on what kind of systems to use. So lots of good opinions, you know, yep. lots of good dialogue. It was a, a very productive, uh, worthwhile experience from my point of view, and I hope uh, you know, Ashray feels the same. Yeah, I do want to follow on though because I think there was something in that decision making process that not being the engineer was was really interesting. That I think is central to Ashray's story, which is that as Stanton mentioned. A lot of, at least from my perspective, a lot of the decision-making to go the route with the Radiant and the DOAS units wasn't necessarily cost-driven. Like, we all knew that was going to be the more expensive route than the -the off-the-shelf. It was that idea, though, that we want to help push in this specific market in a kind of temperate, humid climate. We want to push what we think is the right long-term solution, both from an energy consumption, you know, comfort and whatever, this kind of technology. And I know you or Jeff used to always come back to, you know, when you did the first building um, that, that Ashray previously occupied, there was a similar decision about the VRF units and that, you know, they were going to be more expensive. They were not well known in the market, but Ashray could help push that conversation. So. I'm I'm kind of curious from your perspective how that part of the mission kind of fed y'all's decision making from the committee side. Yeah, so that's um that's a good question. So I distinctly remember when the two options came up and we kind of called a timeout and took our ad hoc into another room to have a discussion about this because we knew it was going to cost more money to go with the system with the radiant system, but we felt like, well, and there were several reasons, but we felt like Rooftop heat pumps is is tried and true, and there's nothing wrong with it, and it's definitely replicable. So that was 
that was our debate amongst ourselves, right? So one of our um, premises when we started this was a cost-effective replicable system that would meet the energy requirements that we had set out. So in terms of that, the rooftop option was definitely the more cost-effective and the more replicable system as opposed to the radiant. On the other hand, the radiant system um, with, with everything that was proposed with it really did, in terms of the Atlanta area, the southeast, push the envelope in terms of technology, in terms of abilities, all of that. So we really had a long discussion amongst our ad hoc and actually took a vote, which if you're involved in ASHRAE, you know everything's decided by a vote, right? So we, we took a vote and um, it was pretty much unanimous that the team wanted to put technology and pushing the envelope ahead of replicability and cost effectiveness. So we felt like as ASHRAE, we, we really needed to do that for our constituents because we, I don't know that we could have all shown our faces if we'd all shown up with just rooftop package units on, a, on an ASHRAE building just, just because of that. So, um, and then I, I do remember we went back into the room and, and had that discussion with you guys. So that was the argument between the two. Now, it's good to know, and I always say this when I do the presentation on it, that there is a cost-effective replicable option if you don't want to go to the expense of the radiant system that we did. And it does show that it is, it is almost as energy efficient as the radiant system that we did. So that, that is out there for other folks that may not have the opportunity to have equipment donated like ASHRAE had on this particular project. Well, and, and in that vein, one of the interesting things we did as, as the architects after um, the project was done, and if we wanted to communicate that, that same kind of message about replicability and cost, is to avoid sidestepping the whole how much was the donated material worth? What was our real cost of construction? We asked our estimators, like, okay, you know, if we had just gone with rooftop package units, you know, and just paid for it all, right, gotten zero donations, you know, where would we have been? And I think we might have actually been a touch cheaper than we were with the donated, some of the donated material. But what it demonstrated exactly to your point was, yes, you don't have to have fancy donations. You don't have to have all this other kind of stuff um, that we were able to fall back on on this project. You could still do this, you know, even with with different materials. It's a little it's a little in the kind of conceptual sense challenging because you want to push that technology you know you want you know you hope that that um, other institutions in the southeast that do have the means would would take that on and as a challenge and right and try to make it there because for all your listeners the the biggest cost differential was the labor or there was a bigger differential in the labor cost when we were looking at the two systems because it's not that it was a crazy complicated technology for the mechanical engineers. It just wasn't familiar to them. And they had to think almost more like plumbing engineers. You mean the contractors? Yeah. The contractors, right? They yeah. had to think almost more like plumbing contractors than they did mechanical contractors. Right. And that was a little bit for them to get over. But, you know, the next one that they do and the next one after that and the next one after that, I think would bring a more you know familiarity, more comfort, like, okay, this really isn't that complicated just just like vrf in the southeast over the last 10 years right. right exactly yeah the other thing we talked about in terms of separating the systems was roof space and that became really 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 important when we started talking about photovoltaics mm-hmm. and if we had put all those units on the roof we would really have limited our yeah. space for our photovoltaics 
Very true. And we're seeing that now a little bit. We've got a couple of our arrays that are shaded by our DOAS units, and they're just they're not performing as well as the rest of the arrays just because of that shade. So, but yeah, so I had a second question for Stanton was, you know, what, what was your biggest lesson learned on, on this project? I, I really enjoyed seeing kind of the, the, the back and forth relative to cost and trade-offs on this project and, and really kind of seeing, you know, almost in real time, what we preach in, you know, is, is transfer of cost out of mechanical systems into passive systems and really trying to find ways to push money the passive way to minimize the, the size of the active systems. And, and because of the budget limitations and whatnot, actually getting that costing feedback, going back to the drawing board and really working, you know, between, you know, whether it be, you know, the envelope, the, the daylighting skylight strategy, um, looking at different ways of, of glazing the building and, and whatnot, looking at, you know, the constructability costs of, of different options and kind of working that back and forth. And then also looking at you know, the HVAC side of the equations, how that fit in. You know, in an attempt to kind of work within you know Ashray's budget, all the while knowing that there was a, a cost escalation situation going with with materials and labor, you know, across you know across the market, across you know all markets in, in the U.S. But you know, my big you know takeaway was truly you know the the importance of investing upfront, you know, in, in the time, you know, and thought to get your, your envelope, get your programming strategy correct, because all that together can help reduce your, your energy uh, utilization index um, before really getting into the HVAC or electrical or even, you know, hot water heating side of the, the equation. I, I wanted to ask Ginger, you know, in, knowing that, you work on the consulting side, you know, that, that's your, that's your day job. Right. And, you know, I've never really worked on the owner side. So I would like to hear from a consultant, what, what it was like, you know, the experience working as the owner, uh, managing the owner team versus you're working as a consultant, you know, what are the similarities? What are the differences? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, as being a consulting engineer for 30 years, right, I recognize what it's like to be the whipping boy on a project, right, if you will. So, uh, it's kind of was kind of nice not to be the person being <laughs> whipped, but maybe the person doing the whipping for once. Um, it was enjoyable. I really liked being on the owner's side and, you know, watching the budget and watching the project develop uh, hitting the milestones of the schedule, which was a really tight schedule, as we all know, uh, you know, just kind of driving the whole thing forward for me was a lot of fun. I, I really, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about contingencies and I learned a lot about, um, you know, working with a construction manager and as well as an owner's rep, because we did have a uh, independent owner's rep that helped us out a lot, right? Because I do have a day job, so um, I was trying to not make this a full-time project for me. But it has been um, a really enjoyable project from my standpoint in terms of representing ASHRAE on the, on the volunteer side. I got a follow-on question for you. Okay. What are three elements you think that the owner's team you know, nailed uh, for this project? And then what are three okay. decisions, owner-driven decisions that maybe you'd modify the next go around? 
So I'll start with the ones that I think we would modify on the next one. And uh, the first one would be budget. So we spent a lot of time <laughs> coming up with initial budget that uh, did not take into account all of the envelope improvements that had to be made. You know, we have a bunch of mechanical engineers sitting around the table coming up with costs for mechanical systems. And we knew we were going to have to replace the windows, but we really didn't anticipate that we were going to have to replace pretty much the shell of the building. So that was a cost bust in terms of our estimating abilities at the start of the project, which Greg um, quickly told us was incorrect. So that's probably something that we would do better. Other things we would modify. So, you know, we were told pretty early on that uh, we should just go ahead and plan on having two moves and moving someone into a rental space while we found a building or built a building and tried not to do it with the schedule that we had. I think that one actually turned out okay. I know it was tough. I know it was tight on everybody to get it done. But, you know, we didn't know we were going to have a pandemic in the middle of it either, which had had we known that, we would have probably taken that advice and uh, and slowed the whole process down. Because we didn't know that, we just moved forward. And, you know, the pandemic in some ways has helped us because we've kind of had a year here where we haven't occupied the building. So we have been able to work through some of the issues this past year that had it been a fully occupied building, trying to work through these issues with an occupied building would have been a problem. That was a double-edged sword, right? So we saved a lot of money by not having two moves because we looked at that budget also as well. But um, luckily, we've had this year to kind of work through some of our issues. Things we would not have changed I think that I would not have changed anybody on the ad hoc. I think everybody did a great job on the ad hoc. We had a lot of different personalities that we had to wrestle together. So I think the ad hoc really kept each other in checks and balances. The technical subcommittee also as well. I think that the photovoltaic system and hiring that like we did and paid for it like we did was a good decision. You know, we were talking in the beginning about leasing that photovoltaic system and having a payback for a long period of time. We were very fortunate that we had a very supportive board of directors who saw that, first of all, we're only going to do this once. We're probably not going to do this again for another 30 years. So let's spend the money to do it right. And uh, so they supported the changes, the cost changes, and also the photovoltaic installation. So that really was helpful. Thanks for listening to the ASHRAE Journal podcast. We want your ideas. What topics do you want to hear about? And who do you want to hear it from? Email us your ideas at podcast at ashrae.org. That is podcast at A-S-H-R-A-E dot org. Let's get back to the episode. I think your OPR, I think you should talk about that OPR process because I feel like that was something that, you know, it's it's never going to be perfect, but it was a great starting point for the yeah. design team right. and it was well thought out and you'd done a lot of upfront work, you know, as, as you would figure Ashray would. So talk about that a little bit. Sure. So that was the brainchild of our technical advisory subcommittee. And luckily they got that done, I think, before you guys even interviewed. Is that right? Yes. And the fact that you still interviewed with that OPR out there, I think, is a pretty impressive in and of itself because it's a pretty strong OPR, right? It has some pretty strong boundaries in terms of what we were trying to accomplish. So, you know, that having that there before the design teams interviewed kind of told everybody what they were getting into. Definitely. So it was no surprise, right? No. But I think you want that constraint. Right. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think for as fast as this was moving... If we had had to peel two months off 
upfront to try to go through that process. Right. I, there's no way. There's no way we would have made it. Right? I agree with that. Because yep. I mean, we were we were up to the last day anyway. Almost it felt like, you know. I mean, there's just there just would have been no time. So from our perspective, I, I think it was incredibly helpful to know exactly what the direction was and to know kind of where the angle was so you could start to make decisions very quickly around what what does that need to be. Right. I think it was a good, strong OPR with a lot of good, strong boundaries, like I said. And um, we had a, a lot of good design teams that came forward for this project, which was great and a lot of good experience. And so, you know, you guys came through in the final selection there and you, you did a good job hitting the OPR and understanding what our parameters were. So, Well, it's nice because you could always refer back to it. It's like if, you, if anybody had a question about how, you know, what's the relative importance, at least you could stick it up against the criteria. If nothing else, you could stick it up against the criteria and say, okay, is this essential or is this going to hit one of these other highly desirables? And if it's not, then we can talk about it, but we're talking about it more as an option, maybe as less a, I've got to have it. What else you got? Well, I'll, I'll ask you my my question. So my understanding is you were sent over as ASHRAE's delegate or representative or something to the COP26. Yep. Is that is that a correct? That is correct. All oh, right. That's cool. So you were nice. You were jet lagged and back. So <laughs> yep. the first question might be uh, a little more humorous, but what was your favorite Scottish dish? <laughs> That you ate. <laughs> well, it was not haggis. <laughs> and it was not. Did you have haggis? Black pudding. No, no, no. I just heard about haggis and I didn't want any. There you go. Same thing with black pudding. No. No, not going there. Well, my second question was going to be, you know, what was the favorite Scottish dish? And did you wake up the next morning feeling okay? <laughs> they like they like their alcohol there. They're, actually, they we heard we heard a lot about all the whiskey that is produced in Scotland, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't try any. I'm not a whiskey person, but I heard a lot about it. So there's a lot of whiskey production that happens there. Definitely. But in all seriousness, I did hear a lot about, obviously, the impacts of climate change. And, mm -hmm. the, and as you know, or maybe don't know, Greg, we did a joint event with AIA. Okay. Did not know. Um, with uh, Architecture 2030 about um, the need for governments to hit a 1.5 degree and um, that the building industry contributes 40% to mm -hmm. global emissions, which is huge. So, you know, the focus on decarbonization and the focus on renovating buildings as we did as opposed to building new. Mm -hmm in and of itself is a is a carbon saver there. You know, we during this process, if you remember, we got rid of our gas generator and the whole mm -hmm. thought there was to decarbonize the headquarters and mm -hmm. not have the use of fossil fuels. And so even though we have a natural gas line running right through the front of our property, we don't use any of it. So there mm -hmm. you go. So that's good. So, you know, I think we did everything right in terms of the headquarters project and the whole need to reduce carbon. Reducing energy um, reduces carbon. So, you know, we, we hit that pretty strong, I think, with the OPR and the goals for the, for the systems. So with our photovoltaics now, hopefully we're going to show after a year's worth of study that we are net zero mm -hmm. or at least very, very close. You can go on to the photovoltaic link and it tells you how much CO2 we've saved 
with the production mm. of energy that we have with our photovoltaic system. So that's going to be a really good metric to keep track of over time, which one of the things that was discussed a lot is the fact that carbon, the reduction of carbon has now become more appropriate than the reduction of energy in terms of where the focus needs to be in the future, mm. even though they're hand in hand, which they are. But there's more to the building industry with new construction and renovation in terms of carbon. Um, reducing energy should always be a goal. So, yeah, it was an interesting time. So, Mr. Walker, uh, what advice would you give your peers, architects, engineers, contractors, uh, advice you would give when they're interested in tackling a performance-based design or construction project, you know, be it zero net energy, zero net carbon, zero net water. I mean, what, what did you learn from this process and, and, and over your career that may help help your peers tackle this type of project? Yeah. So I think the single most important thing any of us can have, but certainly, you know, on the architecture side is you have to have an owner that's committed to help making this happen. Because if you don't, if you have an owner that's just paying lip service because they want press or they want to look like they're doing good, that's great. And maybe that can take you part of the way there. But I think you have to have owners who understand at least where their project fits into a broader picture or a broader pattern and are willing to stand behind the decisions that are going to get made as an outcome in the process. Um, Stanton, unfortunately, took a couple of my questions for Ginger. And I might ask you to kind of rethink something we talked about a little bit differently, but I'll ask the question this way to Ginger. What was the single biggest, from the owner's perspective, what was the single biggest sort of surprise as you got into the early phase of the projects that you were like, oh man, we just did not anticipate that? Oh, I, I've already said it. It was the envelope renovation portion. I mean, we we didn't budget for it. We didn't anticipate it. And so that was um, like, holy cow, this makes perfect sense that we've got to do this, but we don't have the budget for it. So you know, that's when we had to go back and ask for some additional funding. The second one I would say is that we got into the construction and all of the plumbing pipe had to be replaced. All the fire sprinkler pipe had to be replaced. Um, the electrical switchboards, we had huge discussions on the electrical switchboards and the replacement of those. I mean, we knew the mechanical system was going to be a gut and redo, but we assumed, obviously incorrectly, that um, some of the main components of those systems could stay in place and would not be as costly as they ended up being. We had a building inspection done before we purchased the building. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a lot of inspections done before we purchased the building. And um, I think it was, maybe wasn't stated as strongly as it should have been that we needed to replace all the plumbing piping and we needed to replace all the fire sprinkler piping, mainly because it didn't meet code. And so, you know, that was another hit in terms of the budget. So those, from an owner's perspective, it was the two biggest things, I think, that, that hit us that we were not anticipating. So, so in that regard, then this was an interesting, and I totally agree with one thing you said there, which was that there were code changes, right? From when the systems had originally been put in that were mostly mandating that they be replaced or updated more significantly. This is always kind of a fundamental dilemma with me on renovations, which is if you want to do the right thing, which I think Ashray was trying to do both, both from a financial, but also a kind of, you know, we want to reuse as much as we can standpoint. It's not that the, the piping was, uh, let's say on the sprinklers was all bad. There was some that was genuinely just worn out, but it was because code had 
evolved enough since then that that it just didn't meet code. So I'm always kind of curious since you guys maybe certainly infinitely more than AI ever touches anything code related because you all are so you know so involved in helping set where code goes. How would you take some of those lessons into account when you're thinking about codes for existing buildings to help both improve performance, but not necessarily say, well, we just got to scrap it all and start over because it's 30 years old. Like, is there a balancing act that you will be on the owner side made you sort of more aware of that? Like, okay, maybe we need to think about this while we're in code. Yeah. I mean, I think we thought about it more from the aspect of, well, you know, we're renovating the whole building. We don't want to go back five years from now and have to replace the plumbing piping mm-hmm. or the fire sprinkler piping because it's failed, right? It, now's the time to do it. So let's do it so we don't have to do it five years from now. But, you know, from a design engineer standpoint, and I'll let Stanton also weigh in whether um, he agrees or disagrees, you know, if systems are 30 years old, we always recommend replacement mm-hmm. simply for the fact that they're 30 years old and most likely do not meet code. Now, you can't say that about plumbing piping because plumbing piping, there's no code for plumbing piping, right? It's just whether it's sized correctly for what you need for the load. But if it's 30 years old, the recommendation should, in my opinion, be replaced. It Just from a liability standpoint as an engineer, we have to say that. Um, I don't know, Stanton, if there's anything you want to add. No, I totally agree, Ginger. Um, but yeah, every project, there's there's a balancing act. So, you know, when, when you've got you know a tight budget, I think there is you know, maybe a little more momentum towards let's evaluate and figure out you know, what may have you know some longer life to it and, and you know, what doesn't need replacing. And... You know, it really wasn't until you know, we actually got the camera down in some of the pipes that we realized the level of degradation that the plumbing and the stormwater piping had seen over the years, which kind of drove us to the, the obvious you know, conclusion that we needed to replace. But yeah, I mean, you got a 30 plus year old building that is being renovated for the next 30 to 50 years. It's always, hey, if you're going to be thinking that you know, long-term into the future. Let's start fresh with with systems that, that are new, that have, have life, you know, versus having to kind of band-aid it over the second life of the building, so to speak. Ashray Journal podcast team is managing editor, Mary-Kate McGowan, producer and associate editor, Chad Jones, assistant managing editor, Jerry Alger, and associate editors, Tani Polevsky and Rebecca Matasovsky. Copyright Ashray. Views expressed in this podcast are those of individuals only and not of Ashray sponsors or advertisers. Please refer to ashray.org slash podcast for the full disclaimer. <laughs>